This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 8th, 2021. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, broadcasting here from Phoenix, Arizona. And this week, we're going to consider a couple of things. Uh, first, we're going to consider something that I'm doing this week in addition to the other topic, just because it's something you should be aware has come out. And it's the first inflation-adjusted set of numbers. If you don't count the HSA stuff for 2023, it always comes out early in the year. It's our first set of inflation-adjusted numbers. So we'll take a look at those. These are the retirement numbers. And then really the big thing this week, which wasn't quite the big, big thing that you might have been, you know, that you've been kind of waiting to see if it's going to come, but it was still relatively decent, are we're going to take a look at the tax-related provisions in the Investment Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, get the right title here, uh, that was sent to the president for signature. So that bill was not really primarily about tax matters, but there are some tax matters covered in it. And so I want to go over it. Nowhere near the number of tax matters that are involved in the proposed Build Back Better Act, but still, you know, and none, I should say, that are nearly as controversial as some of those that are in the Build Back Better Act, but still ones that you probably need to be aware of. So we'll talk about that. So let's begin by looking at Notice 202161. That was issued on November the 4th. And this is the IRS's annual announcement of the inflation adjustments for various retirement plan and, to a lesser extent, fringe benefit numbers. Again, Congress years ago in the 80s started inflation adjusting most but not all things. And it's just kind of a weird trade-off now these days of what gets inflation adjusted and what doesn't. And even with new tax bills, we have this odd problem that Congress inflation adjusts some things but doesn't others. Okay, ignore that for a while. These have all been and have all been inflation adjusted for years. Now, as I said, remember, this is 2022 tax years. So this is not what you're going to use for years that begin in 2021. For those, you're going to use what were published a year ago or a little over a year ago. This is slightly later than they usually put it out, but to be honest, it almost always comes out right at the end of October. So November 4th is not super late for these numbers to be published. Just normally it is right at the end of October that this set comes out. So we have that. Now, the actual figures for all of this are on the website. And if you download the materials, uh, the PDF version, it's in that as well. But we are going to talk about a few highlighted figures here that are there. Uh, first, and I think a key one, thing that a lot of people get involved in, the annual maximum annual deferral into a 401k or similar deferral plan. Not simples. They get their own number. But that number will go to 20500 right? That That's going to bring it up this year, essentially $1,000 from where it was a year ago. So it used to be at nineteen five, or this year, I should say, 2021. Now it's going to go to 20500 uh, the somewhat related limitation for defined contribution plans, maximum allocation to the plan to a single account is going to go up by three thousand to sixty one hundred dollars from fifty eight to sixty one thousand, I should say dollars from fifty eight thousand dollars. So that's also in the mix. Now, clearly to related to that, whenever you're doing those defined contribution plans, max contribution issues, 
The maximum compensation that can be considered next year will be $245,000. That is up from $230,000. So we have, you know, the basic numbers, they're up. The inflation adjustment is higher this year than it was in recent years, but that's to be expected because we've seen greater inflation this year. So not unusual that these numbers should be a bit higher in their increases. Uh, you know, so there are some, but again, there's still things there that don't move. So you're going to need to be involved with that. Please remember that those sorts of things do end up still running as it goes. Okay, now this also impacts IRA accounts in various ways. And first, the first thing you want to consider is its impact on IRA accounts for the deductible IRA limitations for those who are participants in a retirement plan or a married filing joint and their spouse is a participant of plan, but they aren't. Remember the ability to deduct, not fund, but deduct an IRA contribution to a traditional IRA account is phased out. Those phased out ranges are growing slightly. Uh, basically for a married couple filing a joint return, we're seeing the phase-out numbers begin at 109,000 this year. They began at 109,000 in 2022. They began at 105,000 in 21, so increase of 4,000. For any other status except married filing separate, we're going to see a $2,000 jump in when the phase-out begins. So it's going to start at $68,000 in 2022 rather than the $66,000 that it started with in 2021. As always, married individuals filing separate returns. Those are always the phase-out range that goes from zero to 10,000. Uh, you can inflation adjust zero as a starting point all you want. It'll still be zero. Uh, and what I've also found interesting is while Congress inflation adjusted the start, they didn't inflation adjust the phase-out range. So really, over the years, that range has continually been getting, nar been getting narrower over which you can fund the IRA contribution in terms of real dollars. Uh, finally, if you're a married individual who is filing a joint return, you're not an active participant, but your spouse is an active participant employer plan. At that point, your ability to get a deductible contribution will now begin to phase out at AGI of $204,000 uh, rather than $198,000 last year. So that's a $6,000 increase in that. So again, you know, pretty standard makes sense. Similarly, Roth IRA contributions, again, not conversions because conversions are still unlimited for now, but IRA contributions do begin to phase out uh, as you have modified adjusted gross income. If you have a joint return, that again, 204,000 is basically tied to the regular IRA phase out if either one's a participant. But in this case, it doesn't matter if you have a plan or not. You cannot make a Roth IRA contribution, but you can make a conversion. Uh, if you have modified AGIF to $4,000 or less, and then you phase out as you go above to $4,000. For 2021, that was $198,000, so a $6,000 increase there. For single individuals, head of households, we're looking at $129,000 in 2022 is when you begin to lose the ability to make a Roth IRA contribution, again, regardless of your status with employer plans. That's up from $125,000 that we saw back in 2021. And as always, again, 
Inflation adjusts zero all you want. It doesn't go up. So the inflation adjustment phase out for married filing separate again goes starts at zero to ten thousand. And you can't make a Roth IRA contribution if you're above ten thousand married filing separate. That's one of the negatives of the married filing separate status. You need to remember it's easy to forget that sometimes that you're essentially going to give up the Roth IRA contribution if the taxpayer would have otherwise qualified to make one when you go married filing separate. You know, for all practical purposes, again, at $10,000 of modified AGI, um, you're not really got a tax issue, period. Uh, so, you know, fine. So if you have no tax filing responsibility, effectively, married filing separate, you can do a Roth. Uh, but I don't have many people who are in that in that area, especially being in a community property state where normally we have community property issues. So again, there I'd be looking at a taxpayer in Arizona with probably a married couple with 20000 of combined income in order to have married filing separate at 10000 or below, which, yeah, unlikely I'm going to be dealing with many of those. Now, the big story this week was kind of one that hit us a little bit by surprise. At least we've been told all the way up until Friday a story about how this bill called the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, IIJA, how this act would be passed. And what we had been told from the very beginning was that the progressives in the House had been insisting that this bill only be moved along with the BBBA, or maybe say triple BA. I always want to say just BBA because of the Bipartisan Budget Act and the partnership rules. And so I keep I accidentally will drop a B in there very easily. So I really should just say triple BA, especially if it passes. But that's another day. So what happened was on Friday, after apparently phone calls to the Progressive Caucus from the president and, you know, and a bit of a balking, uh, from the moderates about doing a joint vote on Friday. They started out Friday morning. Uh, they were going to vote both of them through. And then the moderates balked at voting on the triple BA until there was a CBO score to go with. So at the end of the day, what ended up happening was, and of course then the progressives said they wouldn't vote for the other one. Apparently there is a kind of negotiated deal where the moderates who are holding out for a CBO score have agreed that if the CBO score comes in at the numbers that the administration is suggesting that the numbers will come in for the cost of the program to show that the uh, basically the triple BA is totally paid for, then they will vote for it. Okay, so they're, they're saying given that. Now, the hitch with that, you know, for those of us trying to do tax planning, is that it's probably going to take until probably early next week or maybe even late next week because apparently it likely will take a couple of weeks for the Congressional Budget Office to score the proposed triple BA bill or the triple BA. Yeah, I'll go with that, see if that works. You know, that, that bill to get scored. So because of that, yeah, it's probably going to be until then. And as I say, the hitch is if it passes, that means we are likely to see it pass the House late in November. And it's very likely the Senate will make its own changes to the bill. That goes to conference. And if you're not seeing where this is heading, uh, heads up, there's a really good chance we are going to have yet another end-of-year 
last-minute tax change, just like a year ago. We do this every year, right? That's what we always do. There's always a last-minute tax bill. So we could see something very similar to that. It will complicate planning for 2021 because we may not know if there's going to be a law change and even if there's going to be a law change, what's in it until late in the year or conceivably early into next year. You know, last year we got a whopping four days to deal with it, right? The bill was signed on December 27th. So, you know, we had a whopping four days to do it that we thought we had more than that last year. But then at the last minute, the president decided that even though he had said he was going to sign it, he then had second thoughts. And then finally on the 27th, he pretty much out of the blue resolved those second thoughts and we got a signed bill. But all that meant we had a lot of uncertainty. This year, that uncertainty is like doubled because there are a lot of players who conceivably will be involved in the negotiations. This will be much closer to the level of negotiations we had with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act at the last minute to try to resolve the House and Senate differences and get something that could pass. Um, And that one went out on December, it was like the 14th that we got it. So that, that was early, relatively. Uh, this one could be, I think, somewhere in there in that same range as TCJA, conceivably even as late or later than what we had last year. So just be aware of a late time frame. And also, as I would note, it's still not clear that the Senate would pass this bill, the triple BA, regardless of the Congressional Budget Office scoring in its current structure. And some of that will be objections to non-tax items in the bill. Some may be objections to tax items. But right now, some of the biggest objections that we've at least heard Senator Manchin mention have been non-tax items. So I guess there's a reasonable chance that what we see in the triple BA, unless Manchin specifically or Cinema specifically mention a uh, provision in the tax area that they're going to balk at, it seems very possible that we might know the tax items that would be in the final bill, but we won't know if there'll be a bill. So that's always a fun position to be in, especially as December 31st comes forward. But that's not this bill. So let's talk about the bill we do have in this bill. This bill is primarily non-tax. There really are not a lot of tax provisions in the bill. And even among the tax provisions, fewer of them actually relate to income tax issues. So, you know, that's even a narrower category that we're going to have to deal with. So given that fact, we still don't have some things that are going to happen here. And I'm going to try to cover them in their rough level that I believe they're going to be important to those people who are listening to this program. So I'm kind of aiming this toward uh, the, you know, controller in a closely held business, Um, or let's say a CPA in a local CPA firm, or even kind of, you know, a large local, large local sole practitioner, et cetera, maybe even some regional firms would be kind of the bias I'm looking at here. Not really that worried about provisions that might, you know, make things happen more for those in much larger firms, or to be totally honest, provisions that are likely that may have significant impact but they're going to be very regionalized because we do have some disaster issues that are in here. So you want to be aware of those, but until you see a disaster declaration or area, they're not really going to matter for you. So we'll talk about that. 
The biggest issue from I think that's going to affect the most people listening to this here today is the change that we've known was supposed to come with this bill. That would remove the employee retention tax credit uh, essentially in the fourth quarter from everybody except recovery startup businesses. That had been something that we knew was in the bill when it was passed from the Senate. Uh, we've got that. We also are going to have probably the cryptocurrency bit will be somewhat big. And then there are a few other issues we'll talk about here. But they tend to get, in one case, very industry specific. Uh, you know, we have, and as I said, we have the disaster provisions. And yeah, there are a few things we have to deal with here. But for the most part, let's talk about the key ones first. That probably affects you more. The big thing that I think I've seen the most discussion about, especially because we went past November, we went past October 1st, and that is going to be the termination of the employee retention credit as of the end of the third quarter for all businesses except those that are recovery startup businesses. So only the recovery startup businesses will be able to claim the employee retention credit in the fourth quarter. Quick review. A recovery startup business is an employer that be, that began operating a business after February 15th of 2020 that had average revenues of $3 million or less for the three years prior uh, to the year, to the quarter in which they're, you know, that basically as of the end of the third, as of the end of the last tax year, before the end of the quarter in which you're claiming the credit. How's that for a nice definition? And it would be capped at no more than $100,000. This bill is kind of interesting, or this issue is interesting, because there's no requirement of having any direct COVID negative impact. In fact, you might have started, and I'm sure some people did, businesses that specifically were meant to deal with the COVID crisis you know, in whatever to provide support to some ways or give, you know, provide supplies, do other things that were meant to, quote, help relieve the crisis. Well, it doesn't matter. You you may have been a booming business. You still qualify, but it is capped at $100,000 per quarter. Now, the bill does make one change. Previously, you couldn't claim the recovery startup. Uh, you couldn't do, a, do an RSB claim for the employee retention credit if you qualified as if you were basically subject to a full or partial suspension of your business, or if you were a, if you had a reduction in revenue qualification, either in the current quarter or prior quarter, uh, you couldn't do it. That those restrictions for quarter four, not for quarter three, but for quarter four, repealed. The reason is somewhat obvious. Those other two were better, generally, because there was no hundred thousand dollar cap on them. Unlike the cap that we have here on the RS and the RSB ERC, well, there's no need for those now because there's no such other option, and that that was one of those things of Congress uh, having learned, and we discussed this briefly uh, when we talked about a year ago why Congress got rid of the deduction for education expenses. It was because a lot of taxpayers, when faced with a choice, just had no clue how to how to pick. And so they, they just picked the wrong one and get a lower tax benefit than Congress had intended. So, you know, Congress was basically trying to make the ERC idiot proof by telling a recovery startup business if they were subject to a shutdown order or they did somehow meet the 20 percent reduction in revenue compared to 2020. 
uh, they probably should claim under those rules that that was the way you should be claiming. Okay, that, that's gone now because it doesn't matter. But it was necessary to clean this up. Now, the real problem we've got is because this didn't start, you know, basically they didn't get this passed, and the president still has not signed this bill as I record this. He had announced already he wouldn't sign it this weekend. He plans to sign it uh, next week when all the parties can get together who are involved in passing it. There's always going to be some sort of big, I suppose, Rose Garden signing ceremony for this sort of thing where everybody congratulates everybody else. That's traditional for a lot of bills, so that's what we'll do. But generally, you know, it's going to take effect. You know, its effective date will be when signed, and there are a few provisions in here that are effective as of the effective date. So for that case, when he signs, important. But in this case, it does not seem like we're going to see a repeat of last year where the president suddenly has second thoughts about the bill. Uh, This has been a bill that he's been very involved, very involved himself in pushing and negotiating. So I have a serious doubts that we're going to see the problem of the president changing his mind. But please remember, as Yogi Berra said years ago, it's never over till it's over. And, you know, until that signature, until his pen hits the hits the paper, uh, there's always a chance, I suppose, it wouldn't become law. Last year was the first time I ever saw that little addendum you throw on just without thinking. When you do something like this, actually come to fruition almost. Uh, well, it's certainly we were in suspense for a while. But again, it's possible. So the big problem, though, is some businesses may have And most every business I talked to that was thinking of doing this decided that, yeah, we'll just hold off and see what happens and claim the credit on the fourth quarter of 941 then directly. You know, don't worry about the prepayment, you know, reducing our deposits up front. But if you had a business that was reducing its deposit for quarter four because it knew it would qualify because it had a quarter three drop of more than 20 percent in revenue, versus the same quarter three of 2019. So it knew it would qualify. There was no question it would qualify for quarter four unless this passed. So they were offsetting their deposits. It's not clear if there's going to be penalty relief for those people because technically now with this retroactively in there, they have they have essentially shorted their deposits uh, for the beginning. And while I think it's very likely we'll see penalty relief there, the problem is, what are the terms under which the IRS is going to offer to allow them to repay it? Will it just go back in with the fourth quarter 941? That would be the simplest way to do it. Or is the IRS going to say, well, you got two weeks to get the money in, or you got till the end of November to get the money in? I would keep my eye out for a notice or a revenue procedure. I guess it could be an RP uh, that comes out to explain this. If you do, if your business has done this, or you have clients that have off, done the offset, you know, keep your eyes very, very open for any announcement from the IRS on this issue, because that's going to be important, since effectively, the code would say that penalty is going to apply. So we're looking for what are the terms under which the IRS will grant automatic relief, you know, if when you try to catch this up. So I would certainly tell my clients or I would tell the owner if I was a controller uh, that, you know, we may have to scrape together that deposit money. Uh, We know we're going to have to eventually. Uh, The question is going to be when. And the IRS could set a deadline for doing this to get out of the penalty. So we probably need to start considering setting that money aside, trying to get it ready 
so that whatever that deadline is, we can meet it and have it done. So that's probably where I would sit on the ERC and the reco- and this issue for anything except recovery start business. If you're an RSB and you offset, you're fine, right? As an RSB, you're not affected by this change, recovery started business. The second big change, and probably the one that got the most general press, was change in the reporting for digital assets. And the most important thing here is, and it's a term they're using because they don't want to lock themselves into something. So, and again, by the way, we have the full write-up is in the PDF for this week. I also posted it for the most part on the website. I just omitted one table uh, that I'm not going to worry much about in today's thing. Uh, For those of you who do qualified plan work, there is a change in a percentage that impacts single a lengthening of a phase-in of percentages or a lengthening of the time period we're in now for phasing in certain percentages as they impact single employer-defined benefit plans. That, I figure, is a very niche topic. But if you are involved in that, realize that's buried in this bill as well. So let's talk about information reporting. Basically, for the digital age, we're going to put digital assets and add them to a Form 1099-B. Now, this one got a lot of discussion just before the bill passed. And frankly, uh, I'm th- this provision appears to have been, in my view, not so much written by somebody who had a tax background, but I really think that the law enforcement agencies had a lot of influence in how it was written. Because the complaint that comes to mind immediately is this appears to be, with its definition of what it covers and what entities may be required to report under it appears to be very, very, very broad, yanking in potentially even miners of cryptocurrency might end up in some situations, depending upon their the way they operate, their contracts, etc., ending up having to report under this provision. So there's a lot of concern that it is, you know, more broad than it should be. Certainly from a tax perspective, it's way broader than we'd normally see tax provisions like this written. And that caught the attention of the chair of the Senate Finance Committee, Senator Wyden, who was upset with it. And as I recall, I think there was an interesting combo when they came up with this. I know various words. And if I remember right, he and of all, you know, of, of kind of, you know, politics breed strange bed, you know, bedfellows from time to time. Uh, He and Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, who don't really agree on much and don't vote the same way very often, had gotten together to craft a change to make this a more tax-like provision that would isolate this. So we'd be talking mainly about the cryptocurrency exchanges and not necessarily about all these other ancillary businesses that have some tie into cryptocurrency, uh, but might be stuck with having to report under this. Unfortunately, uh, Senator Wyden's amendment did not get adopted. It looked like it was going to for a while, but then objections rose. And like I say, I get the feeling they rose from law enforcement who did not want the bill to be cut down because they see everything as a way of evading this and they want this information. And you understand their reason for wanting the information, but you also understand the problem this makes for tax administration. So we'll just have to see if we ever get an agreement on this and how it works. But I do think there is a high chance that this will be at some point amended. I I think Senator Wyden 
And I think he and Senator Cruz kind of pulled back and, you know, no, no longer took steps to try to stop this from moving based on the assurance that there was, going, you know, in essence, this would come back up for discussion later. Uh, so good news is, yeah, I guess good news, bad news. We have rules. Uh, and if these rules stay unchanged, it does appear the IRS has a lot of discretion in writing regulations to narrow it. And I'm sure that Senator Wyden and Senator Cruz would have comments to those writing the regulations about this and also comments to the president, everybody else who will listen on this issue. Uh, but we'll just have to see how it will go. So in any way, what we have in this particular rule is that we're going to have a couple of things. What's kind of interesting is we have a definition of what is a digital asset. And a digital asset for this purpose, and these are things you're going to have to report on, so you got to figure out something that's a digital asset. It's obviously designed to grab things in like Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin, Ethereum, those sorts of things clearly are meant to be grabbed in. NFTs are meant to be grabbed in. Non-fungible tokens, for those of you who haven't been down that path. Uh, there are various things that are meant to be grabbed in and brought in by this provision. That's why it's broad. That's part of the concerns, but, you know, it could capture a lot of things. A digital asset is a digital representation of value of some sort, and it must be recorded cryptographically, and this will be based on things identified by Treasury as meeting these requirements in regulations. So again, there is some concern that if you take a look at the statute as written and you try to kind of figure out what, what this is, you know, you're going to have a little fun getting there. Now, these digital assets are added by the law to the list of what is called otherwise in what's essentially the 1099B reporting provisions as a covered asset, right? So basically a covered security. So what that means is, effectively, if you have these trades of these sorts of assets, sales of these sorts of assets that take place with a covered entity that's covered by these rules, then there will be a 1099B style report that will be issued for the sale of the security. And if you acquired the security after the effect, what's going to practical effective date here at the beginning of 2023, uh, you know, that basically that third party, if you acquired it through the, you know, covered entity, normally you say brokerage for stock and whatever we're going to set in for the equivalent of the brokerage under this definition, if you acquired it via them or you'd acquired it in another one which transferred it there and has to therefore send the basis information over. Uh, you're going to get a report of both the sales price and the basis. And again, presumably, if you acquired it before that date or did not acquire it via this mechanism, let, let's say that you got it as a miner, you mined it, and you then, you know, then put it into Coinbase and sold it via Coinbase, uh, you would get a report of the sales price but not the basis. So that same 1099B reporting structure will be there. That same issues for how to report. And please remember that if the triple BA passes, these digital assets will generally be subject to the wash sale rules as well. So we'll have wash sale issues and all that great fun as well in all of this. So that would be what we're looking at here. It, you know, it is effective for reports required to be issued after January on or after January 1st, 2024. 
that's a backdoor way of saying that we're going to start tracking this stuff in 23. And in January of 24, we will get, or I should say in what will be February, by February 15th of 24, we will get our first 1099Bs, including these particular assets as when they're sold. Now, if you remember when we first got the 1099B reporting rules and then the basis rules, the IRS delayed effective dates a couple of times. So I wouldn't be totally surprised. I find it amusing that the IRS keeps telling us they can't change dates. We can't change dates. We're not allowed to change things that Congress puts in the law. But then in cases like this, they do it all the time. But how they do it is they don't really change the date. They just issue a blanket good faith uh, you know, waiver on the penalties. So technically, they don't change the date. Practically, they have. I would expect a lot of entities, you know, and the ones they know, the like, you know, the exchanges know they're going to get hit with this. So they'll probably be lobbying to push back the date, claiming it's too complicated. They have too much, you know, there's too much programming to do, et cetera, to get this going. And they will try to push that forward, I'm sure. So I wouldn't be shocked if we don't really get 23 reports or anything on 23 except sales, but no basis numbers, and we don't start seeing basis numbers on those reports until 20, for the year 24 or later year 1099B. So just be aware. Remember how we got into this whole thing with stocks, bonds, options, etc. We tended to have delays. Now, in this case, if you are a covered entity, we, we will have the reporting will be the same as brokers, right? And in, in this case, right? So essentially, if you are involved in transferring Bitcoin, some way of exchanging, transferring, dealing with Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies, probably NFTs and other things, those entities, which we do not know how broad that definition is. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the definition because I really think uh that that is where any changes are going to come as to is covered. But certainly if you deal with clients that are involved in cryptocurrency, uh, you probably want to go back and see if you believe that this particular issue, you know, might be involved and might bring into this. Right. And what it will cover the terms of this, if you regularly act as a middleman with respect to property or services. Right. That that would be the key. That would be one category that goes there or any person who, for consideration, is responsible for regularly providing any service effectuating transfers of digital assets on behalf of another person. So that could even impact you if you were just trying to do it like payment processing options or trying to do via, you know, cryptocurrencies. So like, you know, if an organization like Stripe. I believe does, if you want to pay them to accept cryptocurrency and do it, you know, so you can accept that payment, you can. But that would apparently put Stripe in the position of having to, you know, treat that as an acquisition and then a sale and 1099B all of those transactions uh, for any crypto that went through their payment processing scheme. You know, probably meaning since all payment processors tend to take payment on like, let's say, day one. And if you're lucky, they pay it out on day two. Uh, with crypto, you definitely could see a movement in price. So it'd be a capital asset during that short period. And they might get involved in having to do very detailed. If you're thinking, you know, if you accept payments via Stripe 
and you have volume of payments via crypto, here's where the only good news is crypto's price is so volatile that it, there's risk in being paid via crypto because, yeah, you accepted a payment based on the crypto price today, you know, or let, let's say on Monday, whatever, Monday, uh, you know, what the crypto price would be. But then when they go to pay it out on Tuesday, the price may have dropped substantially. So you then end up selling it for less than you thought it would sell for when somebody like Stripe settles it in cash. So the only good news is that makes it so high risk. We don't see a lot of places except crypto, but we do see some for payment. And obviously, there's a whole industry that wants to kind of make that to norm as a way to get around uh, payment processing fees. I, I think until they can find a stable crypto, you know, where the price will not be as volatile as it is now, I think that's going to be not a whole lot. But if it happened, obviously, just the mere mathematics, even if there's rarely a significant gain or loss, it would still be very messy to have a 1099B report that would deal with, if you ramped up on this, every single payment for the year, which has to go on the 1099B, which then, yeah, total mess. Um, also, this would consider, and this, I think, is obviously law enforcement looking at this one, uh, in addition to the IRS, there is some tax evasion that gets around, but that's okay. Digital assets would be considered cash for the $10,000, uh, you know, transactions of $10,000 or more in cash or transactions that attempt to evade the 10000 limit by breaking into a bunch of separate transactions. So if somebody comes in and they want to, apparently paying for Harleys in cash was a big thing. So, you know, if a Harley dealer took cryptocurrency, and the person comes in and pays for their Harley with Bitcoin, that would become a reportable transaction. The Harley dealer would have to report uh, in that, that this person had paid with a digital asset worth more than $10,000 uh, to buy their Harley. So apparently, yeah, I found that interesting among all things. It would apparently, you know, high-end motorcycles are considered, especially Harleys, are considered are something that had a lot of cash transactions. So, okay, you know, we'll go with that. Um, that's real. That's going to be an issue. Your clients will need to be notified of that, though. If they do accept Bitcoin, uh, it will be considered just like a cash transaction. Again, this would be effective in 23 is the definition here. And there really is questions, as I said, about how broadly it would apply. And are we going to see them dial back that broad application? Or maybe they'll leave it broad but they will write specific exceptions in. That may be more likely because law enforcement will be very concerned about, about writing a narrow definition of who's covered, but they might be okay with writing a broad coverage provision and then a very narrow definition of who, does, who gets exempted from it. So we'll see how that goes. Again, all of this will begin taking place uh, for 2023 year will be when the reports would be first required in early 24. Unfortunately, the way Congress works, in their minds, that means they have till the end of 23 to write any exemption, ignoring the fact that if your business, once we get to the beginning of 23, or even honestly, we get into next year, a lot of these companies have to start preparing just in case they have to report. So, hey, that's what we end up with. Like it or not, it's our Congress. You got to love them. So, you know, that, that's how this is going to work. And we're just going to have to be ready uh, to go ahead and do that. Now, we have a few other provisions in here. Uh, one of the ones very, very narrow 
but there is a modification of the treatment of contribution of capital to water and sewage disposal utilities that are a corporation. Section 118 of the Internal Revenue Code provides that if a corporation receives a contribution of capital in support of construction, generally that's considered that was considered to be tax exempt, right? Not income. Now, a lot of people got upset, you know, with that because governments were using it. There were ways going around. So they thought that was an unfair governments were subsidizing, using this as a subsidy mechanism to attract various businesses to their location. So Congress in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act narrowed the 118 option substantially. Uh, the water and sewage disposal utility industry, though, uh, felt that they were especially affected, the for-profit portions of that. And that was because quite often it appears that, you know, when they're invited to come in and build a plant, you know, a city or a state will bring them in as a private, you know, a private enterprise to run it. But the city or county will still provide the infrastructure. So they'll provide all the costs or the actual plant that this company will now own and operate in this case. And that was a normal way of operating. And the problem was that that now became taxable, right? So we got into all kinds of quirky rules with that. So because of that, and I know they've been pushing because actually I'm in Arizona and one of the provisions that got added in last year's one of Arizona's tax bills was going to, for Arizona income tax purposes, exempt these sorts of payments. So I have to believe it's not just Arizona's legislature they lobbied. I'm sure other places had special state-level tax laws to reinstate this exemption for these utilities. Now we're apparently going to put a federal exemption in. So I don't know if we undo those state rules or not or have potentially confusing state rules that have slightly different rules than the feds. And so, yeah, we'll see what happens. But that that I suspect the states will just go back now and conform to this and not worry about it at least for those that uh, had their contributions after the effective date. Now, the one thing to remember is this only applies to corporations. That's been true of the 118 stuff forever, right? We have seen people time after time after time structure something as a partnership and then, you know, try to make 118 work. 118 does not work if you're a partnership. If you're going to exclude contributions in aid of construction from income, you've got to be a corporation. 118 does not work for partnerships. Nothing. They didn't change anything back in 2017 with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that magically had it apply to partnerships. And there's no magic bullet in this law that will apply it to partnerships. You must be a corporation for this to work. That's the bottom line, right? Only applies to corporation. It is an exclusion from income under 118. You have to meet specific requirements. Uh, you can exclude it generally, you know, if in fact you are just given funds or actually given the plant uh, to operate. So money given directly for the plant that's used in building the plant, no problem, right? That's fine, no catch. But you might be given some money to, you know, buy other equipment that's not technically part of the plant, but it's going to be used in supporting those operations, uh, in that case, there is a special rule. If you are given funds that are for something other than just building the plant, then you have to spend those funds by the end of the year following the year you receive them 
on property that counts for this purpose, and you have to continue to use it for the purpose. That type of spending is going to require special reporting to the IRS, as well as reporting if you stop using the property. And if you fail to make those reports, then the statute on the taxation of what you originally got is going to stay open for three years following for now it's going to be open for three years following the date you finally get your reports in. So if you fail to make the reports, that statute is open forever. So if you are in this industry, you want to check a look at those reporting rules and make sure you understand when you have to notify the IRS of how you're doing it. Otherwise, that year you got the funds for will stay open with regard to the taxability of the receipt of those funds. It won't be open for anything else, but conceivably could be open forever on the question of, well, do you have to pay tax on those funds? You'd probably like to close that down, so I suspect we'll see that done a little differently. Now, there are some other changes uh, that we're involved in here, a number of which uh, are basically affecting extensions of times to file certain things. These are kind of various extension of times or disaster relief rules. The first one of these would modify uh, the rules under Section 7508 Cap A that we've run into the last two years and you always run into if you're in a disaster area. Uh, that, that's where the Secretary of Treasury is allowed to extend the time to do certain acts. And there's a long list of the acts cross-referenced here that's in Section 7508. That you're allowed to have an extended period of time to do certain acts, uh, you know, if the Treasury gives you this relief. This will now prov provide for an automatic 60-day relief, apparently regardless of whether Treasury says anything or not. Previously, you had to have a minimum of 60 days relief grant when there was a disaster relief grant was the way this kind of worked. Uh, minimum 60 days from, and they had a couple of dates, the beginning of the disaster, when disaster first occurred, or the date the relief was granted. But now we're going to make that 60-day relief automatic if you have a qualifying disaster, so you have to go back and uh, be in the disaster area, right, that is specified uh, under the uh, Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief and Emergency Assistance Act under Section 408 of that, as specified by the president. But you're going to have 60 days, essentially, following the beginning of the disaster, you know, when the disaster commenced, or uh, the date when the disaster is declared, if that's later to do the following things. File any return of income, estate, gift, employment, or excise tax. You'll have at least 60 days extension for the payment of any income, estate, gift, employment, or excise tax or any installment involved or of any other liability to the United States in respect to such taxes. Any time to file a petition with the tax court or file a notice of appeal from a decision of the tax court. You have a time to allowance of a credit or refund to pay any tax. You get that extended time frame as well. Also, filing a claim for refund, that time period opens up for those days, or bring a suit to file a claim for refund. If there are multiple disaster declarations affecting the same area, your location, within a 60-day period, uh, a separate 60-day period starts for each declaration. So, you know, we'll just keep pushing it out if there are multiples within 60 days. Obviously, if we get outside that 60-day range, then the first one will have will have basically died off and then we'll see the second one come up. So essentially that, that gives us just some automatic provisions once a disaster is declared without having to like we did the last couple of years or that you did, let's say, with, uh, with the hurricane relief 
seeing the disaster declared and then having to wait a day or two for the Treasury to come out and put this relief forward. It will give you assurance of at least 60 days once there's a disaster declared for this limited list. This is not everything Treasury can open up, right? There's a long list, you remember, from last year, from 2020. During 2020, when we extended the 2019 due dates, there is a long list of things that, in a long revenue ruling, a revenue, yeah, I think it was revenue procedure actually, that the IRS can extend. Uh, we don't get every one of those. We are just getting this very short list uh, that I mentioned, the six items I mentioned. That's what gets the automatic. The Treasury will then have the discretion to extend the other items as they see fit. Okay. We also made some minor modifications to 7508, which is when you're in a combat zone. It was really, I think, more of a clarification. Previously, it uh, had worded the tax court ruling, which I gave you earlier, uh, which was previously it said that you could file a petition for with the tax court for determination of fiscal. That stays the same. Or for review of a decision rendered by the tax court. Due to a case, I believe, and I can't remember the name of it, but they lost this year, that saw something as a review, even though it wasn't a formal appeal to the Court of Appeals, uh, they've now tightened this up. And to make it clear that when that what they now mean is uh, filing a notice of appeal from a decision of the tax court. So they, they basically narrowed that down. Uh, they had a case, the IRS lost, Treasury lost, where review was been interpreted broadly under these rules. And so they've decided we need to tighten this up a bit to kind of make that a little clearer. They also add a special rule, I guess, that's been snowing in D.C. These, these winters, big snowstorms, we've had a few years in a row. This is a special rule that I think also was in relation to a tax court case the taxpayer lost. But this would provide for an automatic tolling of at least 14 days if on the day your tax court petition is due, right? You need to file a petition with the tax court. On the day that is due, if the location was inaccessible or otherwise unavailable on that day, there'd be an automatic 14-day extension. Uh, I suspect this may relate to a case earlier this year where a taxpayer used an unapproved FedEx method to deliver the petition to the tax court. It was set up so it was to be delivered on the date. You know, it would have arrived per FedEx on the day when the petition was due. Uh, but when they got there, for whatever reason, the FedEx driver said he couldn't get to the location. Uh, that problem had cleared up by later in the day, but he never came back and tried again. Uh, it was delivered the next day. It was found late, and the case was thrown out. Uh, this would apparently, in a case like that, I suspect that's what they're aiming at, would have given them 14 days. So if FedEx comes back the next day after being inaccessible the day before, they'd be fine. I still don't know what it worked in that case because they never really specified why it was inaccessible. All the FedEx reports said was inaccessible. So I have a feeling this may not have worked in that case, or at least they would have had to gotten a lot more in information. Finally, another change to 7508 Cap A. In addition to what you can already have, what Treasury can already, that went a little too far for those who are watching the uh, screen. Uh, for whatever reason, it likes to double count when you try to use the keyboard to move it. I just remember never use the keyboard to advance slides uh, under this when I've got this running. Uh, there are significant fire rules added. If there is a significant fire, which is any fire with respect to which assistance is provided under the Robert T. Stafford Disaster Relief Emergency Assistance Act, 
which apparently could happen if it wasn't declared a disaster area. Uh, in that scenario, that would give you the opening of the 7508A rules in addition to a disaster or a terroristic or military action. It would add this to that list. So you wouldn't have to wait for a disaster area to be declared. Uh, if there was assistance provided under the Stafford Act, even without a presidential declaration, apparently can be, uh, then that would open you up that Treasury could still provide the relief. So, And that's probably in response to the big Western wildfires, especially of this past year. So I suspect that that's part of that. So that's why that was in there. Again, this, this bill is not, I mean, this bill is like a 2,800-page bill. And there are very, very, I think maybe, you know, I, I mean, I looked at it in the HTML version of the bill. But, I mean, it's going to be just a very few pages. Even when you look at the printed bill that relate to the tax matters we've discussed. So it's not a huge tax bill. That will not be the case if the triple BA passes. But again, that at least for now appears to be at least a, you know, a more than a week out to pass the house. And that doesn't even count what the Senate might do with it. And then the time to negotiate. So my guess is we're going to be sitting on the other bill and watching it for quite a period of time. Uh, like I said, Closest equivalent I think we have is the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act bill and how that got negotiated after the House got done with it. Then the Senate said, we don't like this, 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 and this. And then we end up with two very different bills. And then we have to see if they can craft a, a compromise middle ground and get it passed. So keep keep your eye on that, what happens. Again, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of November the 8th. Current federal tax developments, as always, are brought to you by your State Society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. Uh, you know, want to make sure that you're aware. You can answer me questions. Ed Zollers at CurrentFederalTaxDevelopments.com if you have a quick question. Uh, also, I do watch the posts on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, um, Minnesota, and we should say Illinois, Washington to some extent. And also just a general site that Idaho set up for discussions. So, you know, if you have any questions, you can check in there. Uh, hopefully I will see you virtually or in person. I do. I have a few in-person sessions this year. Not a whole lot, but a few that, that we're doing. And in fact, probably the biggest chunk of them will come within the next two weeks that I have for Arizona uh, for in-person sessions. So I have those and I think I get a whole chunk of those done. Uh, I think four of them coming up in the next two weeks. And then I have a few more for Arizona coming up in January. A couple more then. Uh, otherwise, currently I'm not scheduled to leave the state to do sessions. So anything for anybody else is virtual from this point forward, at least for this year. But but we'll see how things go. Like I said, I did travel on limited portion for a firm. And, you know, and I, you know, we'll see if anybody else decides they want me to come talk live. But otherwise, you know, we look forward to seeing you in virtual or in person or in those cases where you can choose, which is true of most of the Arizona broadcasts, at least those that take place from their Phoenix office. So we'll look forward to seeing you in some way, shape or form. And if nothing else, look forward to seeing you back here next week. We'll talk about whatever Congress is up to, probably not a whole lot about Triple BA, uh, but whatever they do uh, in the next week and whatever other developments we have in the next broadcast for current federal tax developments.